Hello there, my name's Jake Williams, this is Wooden Teeth, and I have a cold, perhaps you can tell. However, I'm excited. We have a gentleman named Thomas DeVito on the show today. He is the director of advocacy for a group called Transportation Alternatives. I had a chat with him at Transportation Alternatives office in the financial district in New York. Uh, their mission is perhaps a crazy one. It's to make walking and biking safe for the residents of New York. And I say it's crazy because if you think about New York, you might conjure up a picture of, of chaos. You might think about um, people emerging from below ground and going back underground to catch the subway. You've got aggressive pedestrians on the sidewalk. You have either standstill traffic or taxis racing up avenues. Maybe you have um, uh, the odd uh, bike messenger, brave bike messenger, uh, weaving in and out of all of that mayhem. So that's the environment, the physical environment, in which they're trying to create um, a safe space for walking and biking. And to add on top of that, it's not just the physical environment that is, that's a challenge, but also the political environment. First, in organizationally, uh, there are challenges uh, that include the fact that uh, the subway actually is not controlled by the city of New York, but rather the governor of New York and other transportation assets in the city are controlled by the mayor and the city council. And then famously, the mayor doesn't get along with the governor and that leads to problems. Also, um, Democrats and Republicans in the state of New York aren't quite like um, Democrats and Republicans in other states. The coalitions around the parties look a little bit different. Um, also, you know, there was a period where um, several Democrats were caucusing with Republicans. So it's a little bit, a little bit complicated. Thomas also um, introduced me to a new phrase, uh, at least one that I hadn't heard before, called traffic violence that they've strategically used in their work. I'll let him describe um, how and why they've trotted that phrase out as part of their mission. Um, so I have a cold and I'm hoping this Pacific saltwater air will help clear it up. I'm, I'm in California right now and I would be especially remiss if I didn't send a shout out to um, all the folks in California who are experiencing the horrific effects of these fires, both down here in Southern California, as well as up in Northern California. Um, our thoughts are, are with you. And finally, episode one, have you checked it out yet? If you haven't, you should, especially since we had an election recently and the Democrats took back the U.S. House of Representatives. Back in episode one, I spoke with Brad Woodhouse of Protect Our Care, who had a to-do list for House Democrats, so that might be of interest to you if you haven't checked it out already. But for now, I've got a great chat here with Thomas DeVito, Transportation Alternatives. Here you go. Thomas DeVito. Yes. Transportation Alternatives. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, what is Transportation Alternatives? So Transportation Alternatives is New York City's leading advocates for walking, biking, and mass transit. Uh, we are uh, been around since 1973. 
Uh, and throughout that time, uh, we have been at the forefront of New York City's uh, movement away from motor vehicles towards bicycling, uh, walking, and transit. Uh, the launch of City Bike, uh, which is our bike share system, which is the biggest, most successful system in uh, the country. This was the result of uh, years-long kind of advocacy, uh, the launch of Vision Zero, uh, New York City's uh, initiative, Mayor de Blasio's initiative to reduce uh, injuries and fatalities on New York City streets to zero by 2024. Uh, this was a key part of kind of our advocacy uh, to get this policy implemented. And now we see ourselves as watchdogs. Uh, so there's heavy overlap here with the work that we do in public health. Uh, and I'm excited to be on the show. On the way over here, I had train issues. Uh, I got email from you <laughs> saying that you had train issues getting down here. Yeah. What is the, the status of uh, the New York subway system, and is there uh, hope for improvement? There is a glimmer of hope in the distance if New Yorkers mobilize, get active, and start demanding change and accountability. The subway system in New York City is at a kind of recent history low point. Year after year, we see a decline in reliability, a decline in service, uh, transportation alternatives, as well as other advocates across the city, uh, have been uh, leading the charge uh, for congestion pricing, which would put a fee on car trips into the central part of Manhattan, uh, with money going from those fees uh, to investing in the subway system, in the transit system, in the bus system, uh, which would not only be a vital chunk of change in order to make the improvements that need to happen, particularly with the signal system. Um, but it would also uh, make streets safer uh, and repurpose space on our streets towards more efficient uses, buses, bike lanes, things like that. And so they have, or at least they had, this um, model in London, is that correct? They do, yes. And how is it working out there? Uh, it's working well. Um, it started off with uh, huge successes. Um, it kind of remains a success, uh, though what we've heard from advocates over there is that uh, it could be further improved. Prices perhaps increased now to further limit car trips into, into the core. When people think of New York City, they probably don't think outside of Central Park a lot about walking and biking. First of all, do you ever bike commute mm -hmm. um, yourself? Mm -hmm. And what is the culture uh, in, in the city? I imagine it varies by borough on walking and biking as a form of commuting. Okay. Uh, so uh, there is variation. Uh, biking uh, as a form of commuting is uh, more popular in parts of the city that have, uh, unsurprisingly, a more built-out network of protected bike lanes. Manhattan, Brooklyn... Uh, right now have a reasonably well built out protected bike lane network. Uh, that is less the case uh, in the Bronx, in parts of Queens, though that's changing. And it's changing because of the work that we have been doing. Um, most recently, there's been a complete redesign of Queens Boulevard. So for folks who are not aware, Queens Boulevard for many years in New York City was known as the Boulevard of Death. It had uh, one of the highest uh, KSI, which is killed and seriously injured for pedestrians, motorists, and, and bicyclists. 
after many years of advocacy with our local borough committee, and um, I'd like to get into kind of how we organize um, maybe a little bit later, um, but our local borough committee of volunteers worked for years, uh, got the redesign of Queens Boulevard to be high on the priority list of Mayor de Blasio. The boulevard has since been redesigned uh, to include protected bike lane, longer light timing for people to cross the street, curb bump outs, things like that. Uh, and there has not been a single death on Queens Boulevard uh, in the areas that have been redesigned. So it, uh, we're seeing an increase in, in bike commuting uh, along that corridor. Um, now, personally, um, I'm, I'm rather kind of notorious within the organization. I'm not a huge bicyclist myself. Mm-hmm. I consider myself more of the militant pedestrian. But I do, along with most people when they're polled, I am somebody who would be interested but concerned about bike commuting on a regular basis. I am very open to it. I would love to feel safe doing it. I don't think New York City for me is at that point yet. And I often say, you know, my time at transportation alternatives will be done the moment I feel comfortable enough biking into, yeah. into work. And then most New Yorkers, you know, are, are in the, that same boat. So we still have a lot of work to do, but we are making progress. Uh, last year had, uh, the most protected bike lane miles built in New York City in one year. And, uh, you know, this administration has been ramping up construction of protected bike lanes. Um, we're not nearly where we need to be yet. But, um, you know, as long as New Yorkers keep on advocating, keep on the pressure on, uh, we will get there. Yeah, I lived here about uh, 15 years ago, and I don't really recall seeing many or any protected bike lanes at the time. And um, like I said, I, if it were me uh, living in the city now, it, I, I get the sense that I wouldn't feel safe biking everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, like I, I s- certainly have seen more infrastructure around town that would you know, make it a possibility. Yeah. And th- that infrastructure, it needs to come faster and it needs to come in a more kind of equitable distribution. You know, having protected bike lanes in midtown Manhattan in uh, you know, Brownstone, Brooklyn. That's great. Um, we need more protected infrastructure in uh, the Bronx. We need more protected infrastructure in Queens. So, um, you know, our volunteer committees are working hard on it, but that really needs to be priority for the administration going forward. How do um, active transportation issues play in politics here? Separating out for a sure. second, um, mass transit and thinking just about uh, biking and walking. Mm-hmm. How prominent is it and uh, what are the dynamics of organizing around it? Sure. So we've done um, polling uh, several times over the course of the last few years uh, on this issue. You know, protected bike lanes, uh, Vision Zero, pedestrian plazas, these are all things, you know, in the aggregate that poll extremely well. You have uh, 60, 70 percent approval for all of the for those policies. Um, now, where things get tricky, as they always get tricky in, in local politics, is people might be fine with protected bike lanes in the abstract and want more of them. But what happens when it's actually proposed for your street? And that's where kind of a NIMBY phenomenon is is not an uncommon dynamic. Um, so how it plays out, I mean, broadly, uh, I think particularly over the years, safe streets, active transportation have proven themselves to be electoral winners. They're popular, people rally behind them. Um, But 
you know, when it actually comes for on a project by project basis, uh, it becomes a little bit more unpredictable. And that's where having a local volunteer activist network prepared to uh, not just support things in the abstract or elsewhere, but like actually when they're coming in the neighborhood um, and and not just being reactive to policies that are being proposed, you know, on high from the DOT, but actually out there demanding changes on the streets uh, that they know are dangerous and can be improved locally. So that's where a lot of our activism comes into play is that um, the way that we work is we we have, uh, there are five boroughs in Manhattan. Every borough has at least one activist committee. Some boroughs have more than one. Uh, and these borough committees, they're full, they're volunteers. Uh, they have a democratically elected kind of structure, uh, with, um, their leadership chosen amongst themselves. There is a staffer from transportation alternatives who is a resource for those volunteer committees. Um, but, uh, they are out there going to the community board meetings on a regular basis. They're out there meeting with local block associations. They're out there regularly interacting with city council members, state assembly members, state senators, uh, making sure that issues related to street safety, uh, accessibility, uh, safe biking, um, all of those are regularly on the agenda amongst all of those different kind of political institutions and bodies. And when you're engaging with these committees and volunteers and when you're engaging with um, elected officials, how much does public health play into the conversation? Is it, I imagine it's a lot about getting from point A to point B mm-hmm. in, in the manner that you would like to. Sure. Um, but how much, um, if at all, do you talk about the, the resulting health effects? Uh, a lot, actually. So, so Vision Zero um, is a uh, lens in which all of our advocacy, you know, finds its way through at, at some point. Um, and this is particularly the case uh, with a, a committee that we work with, we helped found, but uh, it consists of survivors, um, either people whose family members have been lost to traffic violence or who have themselves uh, survived a, a life-altering injury. So a they're called traffic, Families for Safe Streets. Traffic violence. I just mm-hmm. want to like sure. point out that phrase. That's mm-hmm. the first time I think I've heard that phrase. Sure. So these are people who have... Who have sadly died from mm-hmm. being hit by a car or mm-hmm. had some other mishap. Sorry to stop you on that. Is, yeah, that, yeah, is that phrase, is that phrase intentional. quite intentional? Yes, yeah, it is. Okay. For us, one of the campaigns that Families for Safe Streets has actually led is the Crash Not Accident campaign. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, we're very sensitive to the way that we use language actually influences the way we think about problems and what potential solutions are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the idea, you know, and, and we've been successful uh, in moving the AP style guide away from the word accident, for example, towards the word crash, uh, because a crash um, is a much more neutral term than accident. Accident implies uh, that it was perhaps unavoidable, uh, that there was no concrete, observable um, action that led to that problem or, or the incident. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, driving 60 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone and getting into a crash, that's not an accident. Mm -hmm. You know, that is Mm -hmm. the result of poor decision making. Um, That is the potentially the result of um, poor street design. Um, But big picture is you could identify the contributing factors to that incident happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Accident implies otherwise. Uh, So uh, same thing with traffic violence. 
it is a much better descriptor of what's actually happening. You know, it's a very violent death mm-hmm. to be hit by a car. Yeah. Um, and uh, as a society, you know, we think that there are solutions to ending traffic violence, and it's important that we are speaking in uh, terms that convey, you know, these are not inevitable, um, and that we that we have to have a public health approach in many regards of identifying what the contributing factors are and uh, mitigating or eliminating those factors. Yeah, I mean, I make it makes sense to me uh, now, now that I think about it. Um, it's like negligence is assumed unless proven otherwise, mm-hmm. and it's a safe assumption because we do have a system and we do have rules, and more likely than not, mm-hmm. it, uh, a, a human didn't yeah. follow them in one way or another. And, and, you know, and we're prone, you know, our, our tendency is to, you know, we want to push responsibility up towards the systems level as much yeah. as possible. Um, and, you know, if it is uh, poor street design, you know, if there is if there are streets that we know of that have high, you know, KSI killed and seriously injured, ultimately responsibility for that is on the system designer and mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. on That's the user. Right. When you uh, look out the window in New York. Um, it, it, it looks like chaos, nice chaos, I would argue. But um, in terms of the flow of people on foot and people, you know, going underground and reemerging above ground and subways, uh, the occasional um, bicyclist, how do you approach all of the different ways that people can get from, from point A to point B and try to integrate it yeah. in some sort of sensible way? I think the big picture here is that almost every form of transportation finds a way of getting along with others pretty well with the exception of uh, individual drivers in this environment. Um, Cars are so spatially inefficient for such a constrained uh, area like New York City that that's the elephant in the room. You can't really begin to solve those other problems until you, until we have an honest conversation about the place of cars uh, in, in New York. Once we remove cars from the equation, then there is no more spatial problem for the most part. Um, and uh, you can have space for high capacity highly efficient buses to get people from point A to point B, have space for people to ride bikes safely in protected bike lanes. Uh, you have space for scooters increasingly and other small electric vehicles. I don't vehicles see those around. Are, I, you know, yeah, in Denver, uh, where I live, okay, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. they're flooded and I haven't seen one here yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're coming. It's, it's, only, it's only a matter of time. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, anything that gives people options uh, that is efficient and safe, um, is uh, something that, you know, by and large should be encouraged. But there's going to be, you know, a time of adjustment. Um, but we think, you know, this is an opportunity for a new constituency to uh, come into uh, the transportation space and potentially start demanding, you know, wider bike lanes, for example, so to mitigate the conflict and the overcrowding of those spaces, which is only going to become more apparent as time goes on and more people continue to bike, more people get on scooters or other small electric vehicles. Um, you know, it's potentially a very good thing, uh, but it's going to, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be an adjustment period. Um, but ultimately, uh, space will have to be uh, reallocated away from cars uh, in, in some capacity. There just isn't enough space. Um, it's a matter of physics. 
at, at this point in geometry. They are so spatially inefficient. You remove them from the equation, uh, so much more becomes possible. Buses no longer moving at three miles per hour. You know, you can get them to a speed faster than walking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as our subway system, even in the best case scenario, it will take decades to rehabilitate because of how far it's been allowed to descend. Uh, we need to increasingly look at our street space surface level um, as the way to kind of move people en masse. And that's through a much more efficient bus system. When it comes to the subway system, I think a lot of people, especially outside New York, don't realize that the mayor doesn't control the subway system. Mm-hmm. The governor controls the subway system. Um, and to perhaps make things more complicated, uh, the current governor and the current mayor kind of famously don't get along. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you navigate the, the various levels of government that are needed to be engaged in, in a system that affects people here locally? Uh, it's complicated. Um, I- At the end of the day, when elected officials are hearing enough from their constituents, uh, they will find a way to make it work. And I'll use an example. Recently, over the summer, we were working on um, a a campaign to expand the number of speed safety cameras in school zones. There had been a program for 140 speed safety cameras. We were originally campaigning for speed cameras for every school zone. Uh, The inevitable kind of push and pull of Albany politics uh, narrowed it down to 290 uh, speed safety cameras. But because of a fulcrum vote, basically, um, for a state senator in Brooklyn, uh, who kind of was the swing vote, um, or not, he wasn't a swing vote. He was very antagonistic to the idea of speed safety cameras. He was really the only one. But what's happening in in New York is that you have a 50% of the senators are Republican, 50% are uh, Democrats. Uh, This particular uh, senator is a Democrat who caucuses with Republicans. Uh, So he had a lot of leverage in the situation. He managed to grind the entire thing to a halt, even for the 290. But we were out aggressively campaigning. Uh, we walked a marathon around the state senator's office to show that we were in it for the long haul. Uh, we got several members of Families for Safe Streets, um, myself uh, and then our executive director. We got, we got arrested um, protesting outside of uh, their offices. And because we created so much political demand, the governor, the mayor, and the city council speaker managed to hash out kind of an alternative avenue uh, for getting the speed safety camera program expanded. Uh, So ultimately, um, our theory of change is you need to engage the right elected officials, enough of the elected officials with high enough intensity, uh, and you, uh, the uh, powers that be, will, will figure out a solution. Do you apply uh, an, an equity lens to what you do? Mm-hmm. And um, if you do, um, how is affordable housing, the issue of affordable housing, impacting your mission? I imagine sure. that you know uh, people can't live in the places where they used to be able to live, um, perhaps, um, because of the rising cost of housing. And how does that affect how you engage them and map out sure. what's possible? So we, we definitely um, apply an equity lens to, to all the work that we do. Um, 
from building out partnerships to uh, really emphasizing that safe streets infrastructure um, in particular, I mean, there's a lot of intersections um, that are reflected in the way that streets are constructed. Um, you have a higher number of people hit and killed uh, in low-income communities, communities of color. Uh, you have the kind of systemic underinvestment in resources in low-income communities, communities of color in New York City um, are not, so they're in schools, they're in the hospital system, but they're also kind of in street designs. You know, I was mentioning earlier that you're not seeing as many uh, street redesigns happening in the Bronx and uh, in uh, central Brooklyn and, and places um, that have traditionally been underserved by the city. Uh, so we campaign specifically kind of around uh, those realities, try to kind of bring attention to the fact uh, that this is happening. As far as um, the affordable housing, I mean, for, for us, the ways that we um, build our campaigns is we want as many options for as many people as possible. And we want to make sure, you know, for example, that when bike share is expanding, it's not just expanding into kind of rich neighborhoods, that there's options uh, for, for, for everyone. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but, um, you know, and we also partner closely with um, public health groups. Um, and this kind of goes back to the question that we're jumping back a little bit, um, but the public health lens. Public health takes on a lot of different forms in the different neighborhoods that we work in, and there are different priorities depending, you know, on, on where we're working. Uh, up in the, in the Bronx where we work, our Bronx organizer works very closely with an organization called Bronx Health Reach, and they're uh, leading in the Not 62 campaign. Uh, so Bronx... What's the Not 62? So there are 62 counties in New York City. Yeah. Uh, Bronx regularly ranks last in all sorts of public health indicators. Ah, okay. um, so, uh, and part of uh, the Not 62 campaign is um, bringing active transportation uh, you know, elevating that as a way to fight diabetes and obesity and uh, heart disease. Um, so uh, they, Bronx Health Reach has a high on their uh, on their list of solutions for a lot of the health issues um, is to uh, encourage people to walk, bike, uh, to work. So what's it going to take to get a congestion fee implemented here in New York? Uh, it's going to take a lot of agitating and a lot of pushing our elected officials uh, to make sure that this is a priority. What's the main constituency on the other side that's going to be pushing against it? So it's a little bit tricky in that where things can get clogged up in Albany doesn't necessarily correlate with any like huge constituencies on one side or the other. Uh, oftentimes there are specific elected officials who are just placed in um, positions of particular influence, kind of like in the kind of machine of and the way that Albany works. Um, so you don't see a ton of active pushback on congestion pricing uh, in the wider community. There are pockets of discontent. Um, you know, the small percentage of folks who are driving into Manhattan uh, on, a, on a daily basis might have some objections to it. There are some, the most of the objections like in the, up in Albany come from like a handful of uh, elected officials out in East Queens. East Queens being a transit desert um, and worried about the MTA uh, 
not making their required or requisite kind of investments into uh, bus service out in East Queens. And that's a, and that's a valid concern. Um, and it's something that, you know, as, as watchdogs, um, we're uh, very active in kind of making sure that that happens. So mostly, I think at this point, people recognize that the subway system, which is like the life blood of the city and the city can exist and work as it does without it. If uh, it's not fixed, it's going to be a huge problem for millions of people. So I think the problem now is more inertia and uh, than active opposition per se. Thomas DeVito, next time I visit, mm-hmm. I expect it to be safe to bike in here in New York and we talk about Indeed. what you're going to move on to do next. Indeed. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for uh, chatting with us here today. All right. Thank you. And voila, there it is. You've been transported from an East Coast conversation back here to the West Coast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Quick programming note. We're taking uh, a week off of posting for Thanksgiving week, so enjoy your turkey. Also, as always, I'm going to tell you, you need to give us five stars because you love us. And please uh, subscribe if you haven't already. All right, until next time.